This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, how can we think better? We're asking today's big question to Dr. Mark Stevens. Mark is a senior research fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. Prior to this, Mark was a lecturer at Excelsior College teaching performing artists how to use their creativity to help audiences think deeply. And he's just released a book, The End of Thinking, and he joins me now. Mark, welcome to Bigger Questions. It's a great pleasure to be here, Rob. It's great that you can join us. Now, how was it trying to get performing artists to help their audiences to think? That sounds difficult. It sounds difficult, but it was amazing. That's the first thing to say. I love working with artists, but really it was awakening them to what they already do, which is that art is provocative, it's stimulating, it actually deals with big ideas in a completely different way than, say, a philosophy classroom. But it was really awakening them to being the smart people that they actually are. Right, okay. Usually it's a little bit more interesting than a philosophy classroom as well, the arts. Is that right? You've got it. You've got it. They are (laughs) fabulous. They uh, see the world in a completely different way. They opened my eyes to new vistas. Right. Wow, there you go. So can the performing arts can be that provocative then? I think so. Done well. I mean... Like any industry, there's good art, there's bad art, there's good philosophy, there's bad philosophy, there's good engineering, there's bad engineering. So not all art is by default awesome, but Mm -hmm. great art, I think, not only gets you to feel, but it also gets you to think. Mm. Well, that's terrific. But well, to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask some smaller questions just to get us thinking. Today, we're asking Dr. Mark Stevens about how we can think better. So, Mark, for our smaller question today, I'm going to ask you about thinking and Twitter. Now, do you think Twitter is a good place to ponder the big questions of life at all? Like a lot of questions, yes and no. Twitter's (laughs) really great at starting a thought, but it's not a great place for discussing a thought. So I use Twitter for like lots of article recommendations or a brief little prompt, but I Mm -hmm. think once you're having an argument on Twitter, you're kind of gone. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, we'll see how you go today with our smaller question. There's just one question and it's multiple choice. Now, Business Insider once wrote a blog piece about brilliant thinkers everyone should follow on Twitter. Now, the title of this piece included a specific number of brilliant thinkers to follow. What number did they suggest? Was it A, zero? There are no brilliant thinkers on Twitter. Was it B, five? There are a handful of thinking outliers on Twitter. Was it C, 22? They gathered 22 intellectual heavyweights in areas like design, neuroscience, management, and economics. Or was it D, 396 million? Every Twitter user is a brilliant thinker. Uh, I I can't believe that they would affirm D, so I'm going to go for C, (laughs) 22. And you're right. Yes, Mark, you're thinking straight. For you passed, you got our smaller question right. And if we had a live audience here today, they'd give you a big round of applause. So, so, Mark, this blog piece highlighted 22 people. They constituted as brilliant thinkers. Unfortunately, that didn't actually include you on the list um, as far no. as I was aware. No. But what do you think makes for a great or a brilliant thinker? What I think makes for a great thinker is, first of all, a great learner. So somebody who actually is committed to the process of lifelong learning because a thinker is someone who is in the process of thinking rather than in the business of always having conclusions. So I admire people who I can sit there and go, they're still growing, they're still thinking. Not that they're vague, not that they're indecisive, 
but that I can see that they are open to always learning, growing, developing, and getting better. Mm. So you think then thinking is more the journey more so than the destination, so to speak? Yeah. Now, I don't want to disparage the destination because we want to get at an answer. We don't want to endlessly <laughs> be right. chatting about something. But I think when you're talking about human beings, it is always a journey because you've never arrived. Mm. So do you think we do enough thinking in our culture today? Again, the answer is a bit yes or no, because on every decision that we make, we are thinking. Uh, thinking's not just for the classroom. It's not just for the exam. It's not just for the essay. It is for every decision we make, whether we're talking about purchasing a home, uh, who we want to marry, or whether we what we think the meaning of life is. So in one sense, we do thinking all the time. And so it's ubiquitous. And another mm. state, I would say that we are not conscious enough of our thinking. We're not actually focusing on whether we're doing it well or not. And that's mm. the bigger problem. But you've just highlighted a bunch of different questions or thought processes perhaps that you could adopt. Are there different types of thinking that we need to do? Certainly, you don't want to think about the large questions of the meaning of life in the exact same way that you want to think about purchasing your groceries. So, yes, there are. There, <laughs> Could be a very long are, grocery trip, I yes, suppose, as you. Yes, any, anybody you who runs an the meaning essay, of orange. <laughs> yes, if you write an essay about going to Coles or Woolworths, is a somewhat <laughs> sad thought. There's different modes or manners, and, and certainly I don't think together with my wife the same way I think together with my students. Uh, but. Uh, by the same token, there are some commonalities in our thinking, as in our, our, our thinking should be well thought through. We should be, you know, basing our decisions on good reasons and good evidence, even if it is picking this particular can of beans over that particular can of beans. But do we always do that, though? Do we always base our decisions on good reasons? No, not at all. And sometimes, and a lot of things, you can get away with that. I mean, we can't we can't think about everything in detail. We'll never get out of bed in the morning. We'll never get anything done. Like we've got to just simply go through some default patterns. I don't want to consider my coffee every morning. I just want to go to my favourite cafe and grab my coffee and be on my way. So I can't have a reflective process about everything. But we do need to have the capacity to be able to stop and reflect at points if I do need to change my mind about something. And it's when we never reflect on what we're doing that we can get into trouble and we do actually get into poor thinking habits. Mm. So does this where things like social media perhaps, do they exacerbate or do they help us with these decision-making processes or do they make it worse? Social media, again, is something that probably amplifies what's already there within us. So you, mm -hmm. I want to be careful in just blaming social media because I don't think social media has completely invented any of the habits, but it, yeah, it does tend to amplify what we're already like. Social media tends to create mobbing. It tends to create a kind of group think, a kind mm. of way of kind of going, well, everybody's into this, so I've got to get into this, or I've got to have this particular opinion. And Probably the big thing about social media is that it disembodies our thinking. So particularly when we're talking about communication with other people and ideas clashing with one another, I don't like what that person said. I think it's much easier to be nastier and a more a negative thinker on social media than it is face-to-face. Dehumanising or depersonalising, but certainly dehumanising. Yeah, you can't hear your tone of voice. You can't see their reactions in real time. And you, uh, yeah, I just think when you're typing on a keyboard, you, you, I become more venomous and I feel like other people do too. Mm. 
So you wrote a book, The End of Thinking. So why did you give it that title? Do you think that we're not very good at thinking in our world today or, or that thinking is coming to an end? So it's a deliberate play on words with the end because in the English language, the word end can mean the finish of something, but it can also mean the goal of something. And so sometimes okay. it might feel like thinking has ended and everybody has just resorted to shouting. Uh, but really what I'm trying to do in the book, it's a question mark, the end of thinking, which is what is the goal of thinking? Why do mm. we want to think well? And mm. what would be bad goals in our thinking? So give us the scoop. <laughs> we probably should all go out and buy the book anyway, but what is, what is the goal? What is, what is the goal of, what the, is the goal of the thinking? goal of the goal of thinking is I think the goal of life, which is to serve and bless other people. Uh, mm. I think thinking is an act of love towards other people. So instead of thinking about thinking as my opportunity to win stuff, to make more money, to gain more power in the world, uh, those are all means actually to how do I help people with what I'm saying? How do I help people with my thinking? How do I say true things that actually are of benefit to others? Mm. Obviously, the today's big question is about thinking better, but why should we even bother thinking anyway? Why should we be concerned about how we think? Because I think the impact of our decisions are enormous on not only our own lives, but on the lives of others, that when we share ideas or when we believe an idea for ourselves and when we share that idea with others in the hope that they will believe it, we really do change people's lives. It's an enormous power. Ideas are incredibly powerful. And mm. when we use that power well, we have a very, very positive influence on people. But when we use that power poorly, then you can have a very negative impact on people. I can't tell you the amount of times, and I share this in the book, that I've encountered as a pastor and as a, a tertiary educator, the amount of times that people have come to me and talked about how a certain idea or thought that was given to someone early on or at some point in their life really damaged them. And not only that, I've also seen the power of somebody who was told something that was true and that was good and that was beautiful at a key point in their life and how it has benefited them. So there's an enormous power in sharing ideas and getting someone to believe something. And we ignore the power of our thinking at our peril. You really can change someone's life, even if you don't know about it. Wow. That's, so there's real power in thinking then? Yes. And there is a power in thinking that we don't fully calculate. So I can't tell you also the amount of times when I've found out that an idea I shared transformed someone's life, but I only found out about it 10 years later, that mm. they came up to me and said, you remember that class you did on there? So you remember that conversation we had? On the basis of that, I made this decision and it's made all the difference. And I'm I'm usually quite shocked because it's not the ones that I thought were my profound conversations. It's normally <laughs> the ones that I thought were fairly mundane and ordinary and I've had this profound transformative effect, didn't know about it. So that encourages me to go, I've got to be in the habit of thinking well because it's not just when I'm supposedly on professionally or when I'm getting it perfectly right that, that I'm influencing people. I'm always influencing people when I'm sharing my ideas. Hmm. So is, is it hard to think well then? It is hard, but not in the ways that we might sometimes portray it, which is in the school sense of, you know, learning uh, complex maths is hard or learning advanced English texts is hard or learning particle physics is hard. That's how we've normally 
thought about thinking. We've thought about it in terms of the actual subject matter is very, very hard. That's always hard and it's always difficult and things are complex. Whether you're talking about vaccines or how to raise a kid, doesn't matter. But I'm saying that thinking is hard because one of the things that's hard about thinking is staying humble because a lot of the time in our thinking, we use thinking to puff ourselves up and make ourselves proud and arrogant. And so I've met a lot of people, including myself, who become worse people the smarter we get or the more credentialed we get. And it's harder to be hospitable to other people because as we grow more and more powerful in our mind, we become people who are less enjoyable to be around. Mm. So that's the bits that I'm really wanting to focus on in terms of thinking well is I, I, I think thinking sometimes deforms our character. We, we actually know more but we become less, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Well, speaking of some ideas, you do work for the Centre for Public Christianity. and But so isn't thinking contrary to the Christian message? Because American author, atheist Ernest Hemingway once said, all thinking men are atheists. Uh, and you can also buy a T-shirt on Amazon, which has Jesus saves you from thinking printed on the front. So doesn't the Christian message therefore discourage thinking and just resort, you know, just trust Jesus, don't have to worry about thinking? Certainly there's a number of atheist thinkers who would think so and there's probably sometimes some Christian thinkers who've presented faith as if it's opposed to reason. So there is this idea sometimes that faith and reason are antithetical to one another and that they kind of mutually repel one another. They're kind of allergic to one another. You can't have faith with reason and you can't have reason with faith. But in the Christian story, actually what faith is is reasonable trust. It's Mm. a recognition that you have to have good reasons to trust in uh, this God, this Jesus, but it isn't the case that it's unreasonable trust. The Christian story never calls people to trust in Jesus on no evidence at all. In fact, it actually tries to present you with good reasons to believe and then to exercise your trust because there is a strong basis for it. Uh, mm. the, this, the Bible actually speaks against following uh, myths and uh, cleverly devised stories, it knows that you can believe for terrible reasons and it wants you to believe for good reasons. Mm. So atheism then, is that a more natural path to take for the thinker, do you think? No, it's often presented by people as being the thinking option because for many people they've come out of a religious background where they were never encouraged to investigate the reasons and they were never encouraged to ask good questions of the faith. And so the first time they did it was in the context of an atheist journey. And I feel really sad that sometimes Christians are not formed to ask bigger questions. That's actually part of a faith strengthening process rather than a faith corrosive process. So Mm. no, I reject the idea that atheism is some natural outgrowth of thinking. So then how does the Christian faith impact the way that you think, Mark? Yeah, it, it impacts me in a whole range of areas. The first thing is that it does have a robust commitment to the truth that it wants, God calls me to believe in him because he's really there and I can think about my faith and find him at the end of that thinking. And so I've never found a conflict in my faith between trying to imagine something that isn't true, but rather God is calling me to discover that he is the truth and he is the way and he is the life. So therefore Christianity has encouraged me in my investigation and my curiosity in the world. It's also encouraged me to think about what is the good of thinking. 
That is, what's the aim of what I'm trying to bring about by knowing things? Because the end of thinking, that's why the book is written the way it is, because I've realized that this incredibly powerful brain that we all have is meant to actually do good things, not just for me, but also for other people. That if I learn to become a medical doctor, the real benefit of that is not my salary, but it's actually the blessing I can bring to other people. If I'm a philosopher, the real benefit of that is not that people would praise me as a smart person, but the ability to help others think well about life. If they, if God has enabled me to be an engineer, it is not just simply a gain about my ability to live in a nice suburb, but it's about my capacity to be able to build and create things within the world that enable good. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, there is a verse in the Bible from the book of Romans in the New Testament, which speaks a bit about the manner of our thinking or how we are to, to think in some sense, from Romans 12, 3, which says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So how does this then, Mark, help us to think better? So the key in that particular verse is the way that there's an encouragement to consider oneself with sober judgment, which is mm. really a lovely way of saying you're a limited person. You, you're probably not as good as you think and you probably aren't as amazing as you first think. And it's not trying to be down on you. It's trying to recognize that we need one another. None of us has a complete handle on everything. I'm not an expert in everything. I'm not uh, the person with all the answers. The person who thinks they've got all the answers, unless you're a talkback radio host, you don't have all the answers. <laughs> what you have Maybe is, on Twitter perhaps. Maybe on Twitter you have all the answers. Even the smartest person in the world knows a few things really well maybe a lot of things somewhat well and then a massive amount of things they don't know well at all and that's certainly true for me. And so sober judgment is really the capacity for me to sit there and go, here's where I'm really strong, ask me lots of questions about that, here's where I'm not so strong so maybe you want to think about this and then if you ask me something about, you know, kind of French pastry cooking, then I'd be sitting there going, yeah, I'm not the right person for that. <laughs> okay. Because right. it does also say, it says, it provides a contrast there. It says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, uh, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. But now some people are critical of the Christian faith that it's too down on people, that it says that we're all negative and that we should, you know, the, the Christian people are hopeless uh, and you think yourself very low. How, how does this help us to think through that? I think the Christian story is incredibly, incredibly dignifying to all people. It says that all people are made in the image of God, and that's an incredibly powerful image. It's actually a royal image. It's an image of how wonderfully gifted and capable people can be. And I think if you look at human history, we have this capacity to invent things, to know things, to name things that has been there from the very beginning that is brilliant. So the first statement of the Christian story is to say humans are wonderful, but they are also limited and contingent, which means mm. their wonderfulness does not take away from, or does not mean that they have no limitations. And so it's not that we want to be down on it ourselves or that we can never know anything. It's that really, I think it's a call to community, which is that we need one another, that it's not only I'm brilliant, 
it's your brilliant too. And so how do I, how do you learn from my brilliance and how do I learn from your brilliance? And mm. sometimes that will mean me going, I'm wrong, which is the harder bit. But <laughs> also the joy is that, wow, you can play piano and I can write essays and you can build bridges and you can fix broken bones. And wow, we need one another. Mm. Isn't it also a call to humility as well? It is. It is. And the humility is again sitting there going, well, I'm not as good at everything as I would like to be. You know, I'd love to be able to be good at everything, but I particularly like to be good at mechanical things that would mean I don't have to pay as much money to people who are, but, <laughs> uh, but I'm just not. I'm just, and that, that ship has sailed, I think, in my life. But <laughs> the, the call to humility is also a call, and this is another part of the Christian story which says even though we're glorious, we are also capable of profound error and in uh, Christian terminology, sin, which is that we can actually corrupt our strengths, that we can turn our strengths towards evil. And so humility is recognising not only my limitations, I'm not awesome at everything, but also it recognises my capacity to actually take something that's good and use it for selfish purposes that at that are not entirely clear to me when I'm in the middle of doing that. So I can think of lots of times when I've taken my gift of knowledge about some topic and I've actually used it to hurt or harm or slander mm. someone else. And I'm ashamed about those things, but I have to have an awareness of being able to go, I got that wrong and I got it and I got it really wrong and I need to apologize. So how do we build that awareness of when our thinking can take us down the wrong path? Yeah, that's a great question, Rob. I think the first port of call is to always be open to the possibility that I'm wrong. Now, please hear me correctly when I'm saying don't assume that I'm wrong. I never assume that I'm wrong, mm. but I'm so open. You can, hold, you can hold your beliefs with conviction. Yes, I'm open to the possibility that I'm wrong. So there's a lovely little saying, uh, Adam Grant uses it in his book, Think Again, which just came out after mine, <laughs> which is he says, argue like you're right, listen like you're wrong. And mm. I think that's a good posture to take, which is that it doesn't ask you to, to argue it in this kind of limp, wishy-washy fashion where it's kind of like maybe we want to think about it like this. Like normally when we're arguing for a point of view, we really do believe it. Mm. Well, there's, there's important issues to argue about. You've got it. Someone's got to be right at some point. Yes. You can't just say, well, we all might be wrong, so we don't make any decisions sure. at all. You'll, You'll never get an anything orange? done. Yeah. You'll never get anything <laughs> done. So argue like you're right, make your point, but then stop and listen and go, I'm going to listen to other perspectives enough and be open to the fact that I'm, that I'm, that could be wrong. It probably is the case. I hope it's the case that I'm not wrong that often, but, <laughs> but if I'm never open to it, I'll never get, uh, I'll never get caught short. And hopefully not too often, as in not that I'm making mistakes all the time, but I will get caught up and I will get shown up. And if I'm never open to that fact, so I think there's a first posture. There's just a general posture. Um, and the, the second thing that I would say in there in terms of developing humility in my thinking is to check to what degree am I holding on to a particular idea because I'm just trying to save face or something just makes me feel better. And they, they are two dimensions that we don't like to admit in our thinking, which is shame and displeasure. So we go to the doctor and he wants to give us bad news 
there's a feeling in us that just, I just don't want to hear this. I don't want to know the truth. You know, I had a guy come and look at uh, something on my house today and he quoted to me a price that was terrifying in terms of how much it will cost to fix it. And I'm kind of like, you know, well, I've just got to open myself up to that reality that that might be the kind of money that I've got to pay. And so too with saving face, I do need to own up to the fact of sometimes I just want to be seen to be right, even if I'm not right, because it's a bit too hard to take when I'm the losing person in this discussion. Mm -hmm. Now, Mark, in your book, you've suggested three particular characteristics uh, of the thinker uh, that you suggest, humility, hospitality, and love. They will help us to think better. Why why those virtues? We've talked a bit about humility, but why uh, hospitality and love? How will they help us to think better? One of the reasons is that they're all drawn from the Christian story. They're all drawn from the Christian tradition. These are core virtues and practices of the Christian tradition that if we do anything, we do it in humility, we do it in hospitality, we do it in love. Humility, I think, is commonly recognised by a lot of people. It doesn't have to be Christians. Hospitality and love is something that I see peculiarly emphasised in a really helpful way in the Christian story. Hospitality is usually understood to be in terms of being uh, invitational to someone to your dinner table or something like that. But the essence of hospitality in the Christian story is welcoming strangers, It's welcoming a stranger to your table and making them your friend by having them at your table. Now, what's intriguing is to apply that in the intellectual sphere. Intellectual hospitality is to invite strangers to the intellectual table and to allow yourself to entertain ideas that are initially strange to you. doesn't mean you affirm them. It just means you listen to them. And I think in a world of Twitter and Facebook where we so easily create an echo chamber where we just form affinity groups based on like-minded people, that hospitality is such a key because it gets you out of your bubble listening to people who actually think and see the world very, very differently to you. And what it does is it awakens you to, if you do have a bias, if you do have a systematic blind spot that you can't see because you are not part of that ethnic group or you are not part of that political group, it awakens you to that. So that's where hospitality comes in. Love which is the uniting virtue of all Christian virtues, it's the thing that should undergird and permeate everything we do, is to really get at that goal idea in thinking, which is what I want to do when I'm thinking well is to love you. That is, I want to be loving towards you and that will transform not only the way I think but also the way I communicate my thinking. So, Mark, how can we think better? We think better when we commit to reflecting on our thinking and we think better when we reflect on why we want to get something right. And if we want to get something right so that we all learn truth together and everybody is benefited, then we think better. Let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question, how can we think better from Romans 12.3? For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Dr. Mark Stevens. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.